morning again. Uh, we're honored to have as our guest this morning Dr. Deidre Good. Uh, she is a professor of New Testament at General Theological Seminary, where I've been uh, during the week this year. Uh, and there are people here who saw me there, so they can prove that. Um, uh, Professor Good uh, did her uh, graduate studies at St. Andrews and at Union Theological Seminary uh, in New York before uh, doing her doctorate at Harvard. Uh, she has been teaching at uh, General Seminary. Uh, well, she started teaching at General when I started high school, so I'll just leave it at that. Please give a warm welcome to uh, Professor Deidre Good. Good morning, everybody. life, I spend a lot of time with old books and texts and online digital things from antiquity. So I will get to what the text for today is, but if I could back into it a little bit by looking at older versions of that text, the versions that our ancestors might have known, that'll be my way to get into it, if that's all right with you. So I'm going to start with John Wycliffe. I don't know if any of you are watching the PBS series Wolf Hall on Sunday night. Sunday nights seem to be, I'm sure they're very busy in this church, but um, if you actually have any time to watch television, what is television anymore? All of us have busy lives. Um, there's a PBS series called Wolf Hall, and uh, it's, it's, about, uh, it's about Tudor, it's about Tudor England. And before Tudor England, there were Bibles in English, but in that period, an English Bible was contested. People were burnt at the stake for producing, for writing, for translating English Bibles. And one very early version was that of John Wycliffe. This is what he said in the text we're going to look at today. Greet well Andronicus and Unia, that's J-U-N-I-A, my cousins and mine even prisoners, which be noble among the apostles and which were before me in Christ. Now, uh, after, uh, much later, in, in, in uh, an authoritative translation for our world, the King James or the authorized version of 1611 translated that verse this way, Salute Andronicus and Unia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles and who were also in Christ before me. Closer to our time, the American Standard Version. Salute Andronicus and Unius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles and who also have been in Christ before me. Sometimes Bible translations are done by individuals, and here's J.B. Phillips. I'm going to back into it. Shake the hand of dear Epinetus, Achaia's first man to be one for Christ, and of course greet Mary, who has worked so hard for you. A handshake, too, for Andronicus and Unius, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are outstanding men among the messengers and were Christians before I was. Closer to our time the Revised Standard Version. Greet Andronicus and Unius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are men of note among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. And the version that we have authorized for use in our seminary chapel and in other Episcopal churches is the New Revised Standard Version. 
This is how it renders that verse, Romans 16, 7. Greet Andronicus and Eunia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. And since then, of course, there is a plethora of modern translations. If you go to a bookstore or get online for whichever place you order books from, you will see of the making and translating of Bibles, there is no end. I'm sure that it's driven by the publishing industry. And if any of you are in publishing, well done. <laughs> so the new international version of 2011 renders Romans 16:7. Greet Andronicus and Unia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. And one last translation, the Net Bible. Greet Andronicus and Unia, my compatriots and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. What am I getting at? Why am I so interested in the variant translations of this verse? And did you notice the variant translations Anyway, it's probably my interest, not yours, to compare all these sorts of versions. I think I'll just jump straight away to the conclusions of all these diverse translations. One, my focus today is Unia, and the title of the sermon in your bulletins is When Unia Was a Woman. That's the first point. Unia was a woman. In fact, in antiquity, second point, there is no evidence that any man had the name Unias. Third point, Unia is not, as some have argued, a contracted name of Unianus. Fourth point, among the apostles in the text means Unia herself was an apostle. So those are my four conclusions shared with a goodly number of scholars. And I'd like now just to have a little discussion about some of the implications of reading Unia in Romans 16.7 as a woman. All early translations of the New Testament into other languages listed Unia as a woman. So, for example, in Old Latin, in the Vulgate, in Coptic, I'm teaching a class on Coptic now with a few students. <laughs> in Coptic, <laughs> in Coptic, it, the Copts are the persecuted Christians in Egypt now. I'm sure that there are Coptic churches in your neighborhoods. We have several Coptic churches. They are bursting at the seams in New York City because of the Coptic flight from Egypt. Because Copts, remember the beheading of Coptic Christians that happened not so long ago? Old Coptic translations in the Sahidic and Bahiric dialects and Syriac understand Unia to be a woman. What about English translations? Well, I've given you a cross-section. From Wycliffe to the last quarter of the 19th century, Unia was a woman. But Unia, the woman, wasn't the only view known to the church in antiquity. Unia was also turned into a man. Considering this history, it's important to recognize that the Greek New Testaments that Christians use and pastors like Jason are studying, and I know he's studying it because the pages of Romans in Greek are attached to the walls of his study in the back here, 
These Greek New Testaments that you can buy, see online, digitized, are composite texts. They are not the original New Testament. In fact, I don't believe there is such a thing as an original New Testament. These composite texts draw one word from one manuscript and another word from another manuscript to produce about 98% of the New Testament. So what happens here is that scholars examine ancient manuscripts and translations and liturgical texts in quotations, say in church fathers or mothers, in sermons and books, and reconstruct from all of this something like the earliest text that we, can, that we can read. Then they publish a Greek New Testament. And these texts are what people use to translate the New Testament today. So if you go to the American Bible Society in New York City, maybe you have a Bible Society in Baltimore, if you're translating the, the New Testament into Amharic or Swahili, you're using that Greek New Testament to do it. And these Greek New Testament texts, from Erasmus in the Reformation to the German scholar Nestle, and if you want to remember that, I always think chocolate. I did till we disliked the Nestle Corporation, but that's a whole other story. So Nestle, Nestle who edited the Greek New Testament in 1927, from the earliest times to 1927, Unia was a woman, with one or two exceptions. But in 1927, Nestle, in his 13th edition of the composite Greek New Testament, silenced Unia and gave birth to a new Christian man named Unias. Now, he wasn't the first person to do it. Luther did it, but we shouldn't blame Luther for that because there's a, a guy in the 14th century called Egidius of Rome who did it first. I'm not sure how much he was paying attention, but he at least has some responsibility for this. So let me pause to reflect here that the focus of my sermon is, yes, finding women in the New Testament. Yes, that's important. Of course it's important. Finding women in the Bible is important. Finding and recognizing and appreciating women is important. But I'm finding Unia. Yet I still want to ask what difference it makes to find women in antiquity. Here's one possible answer. In Romans 16, I'm just going to have a look briefly at Romans 16.1, and then I'm going to back into my verse. In Romans 16.1, Paul commends, verse 1, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Kencray, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Phoebe, some have argued, was probably the first person to read Romans aloud in public. She probably carried Romans to Rome. You remember Paul had not yet gone to Rome. Romans is written to herald Paul's arrival in Rome to prepare the way, as it were. He had not, as he has done in every other case, gone to a community and preached there first. Romans introduces Paul to those believers in Christ at Rome. Phoebe Romans 16.1, may well have been the first person to read. Remember, in antiquity, people didn't read silently. They only heard things out loud. She may have been the first person to read Romans out loud in public in Rome. 
And if so, she was the first person to utter Unia's name from an apostolic letter in a church. And she was responsible as the courier to answer questions, if there were any, from the Roman community who heard Paul's letter. So the first person to commentate on Romans, as some scholars have argued, was Phoebe, a woman. Now, this is very interesting. There's certainly an implication of discovering who Phoebe was and discovering who Eunia was. But we have no way of being able to verify that discovery or conjecture because we cannot hear from antiquity, we do not hear the voices of Phoebe. We do not have a letter from Phoebe. Nor can we hear the voice of Eunia. We do not know what Andronicus and Eunia preached. So then, what is the point of identifying women? What is the point of identifying their roles? What, what benefit does it give us to know that Phoebe was a benefactor and that Eulia was an apostle when we don't hear their voices? Now, Eunia isn't alone here. Pick any woman whose name we know in the Bible and consider whether we hear her voice. There's an old saying, anonymous was a woman, and there are plenty of anonymous women in biblical texts. And even when we do hear the voices of women in the Bible, consider who is recording and transmitting those voices through centuries. So the focus of my sermon on Unia in Romans 16, 7, imprisoned with Paul, prominent among the apostles, in Christ before I was. The focus of my sermon today is the silencing of women in Western tradition. And what I want to focus on this morning is how this is done, how this is done. Of course, you realize immediately the irony of this sermon, because here am I speaking this sermon out loud. <laughs> I'm not silent, <laughs> and neither are you. So I'm observing ways in Western tradition in which women are silenced. Look at the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. What's the beginning in the Bible? Well, you might think it's Genesis. Actually, it isn't Genesis. Genesis is you know, a beginning, but it's not the beginning in terms of history. Let's go to Exodus 15. Exodus 15, this great song of deliverance from the, the pursuing Egyptian armies. I can see this is a church that loves the Bible. I can see some of you opening up your Bibles. Excellent. I'm going to do that too. So let's go to Exodus 15. So Exodus 15 is often called the Shehasharim, the song of the sea. I'm giving it its Hebrew name. Because in it, the, the Israelites celebrate their deliverance. In fact, this is the founding narrative of the Israelite tradition. This is the narrative that celebrates God's deliverance of the Israelite slaves from the pursuing Egyptian armies through the middle of the sea and safely onto the other side. And it starts Exodus 15.1. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider has he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. 
Now, I know your translation says Lord, but I'm just reading Yahweh because that's, that's, the, that's the Hebrew text. And you know the name of God is variable, and Yahweh is one of them. So this great deliverance song goes on for lots of verses. It's an amazing song. And right at the end, we see in verse 19 the destruction of pharaohs, horses and chariot drivers in the sea as the Lord closed the waves over them. But the Israelites walk, on, walk through the sea on dry ground. And then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider has he thrown into the sea. But we just heard that. We heard the same thing that Miriam sang back in chapter 15, verse 1. Horse and rider, same thing. So what's going on? Okay, so who was singing in chapter 15, verse 1? Moses. And who is singing in chapter 15, verse 21? Miriam. So who are Moses and who are Miriam? Brother and sister. Do you remember the story of God calling Moses who couldn't speak and who didn't want to go to Pharaoh? Here is Moses, according to Exodus 15:1, finding his voice in song. And yet, he's not the loquacious one. So what scholars have suggested is that this was Miriam's song a residue of which we see in verse 20 and 21. It was Miriam who took up tambourines and sang to the people on the shores of the Red Sea. But in tradition, this song was ascribed to Moses. And today in the daily office, we sing the song of Moses. And if I live long enough, Jason, I would like to change that. Through, I would have to shoot all the members of the Standing Liturgical Commission, probably, but <laughs> never mind. It's going to say the song of Miriam because this is the one whose song it is. And you can see if your Bible, like mine, has paragraph headings, I'll have to change the paragraph headings in this translation as well because my paragraph heading clearly ascribes the song to Moses. But when I teach, I dispense with all paragraph headings. They don't belong in the text. When I teach, I dispense with all punctuation. It doesn't belong in the text. I dispense with chapter and verse. It doesn't belong in the text. It's a sea of instability. But if you feel that you're not walking on dry ground, all you have to do is look at the text, and terra firma is restored. So perhaps this song, and scholars like Frank Cross, not known to be feminists, have suggested that this song belongs to Miriam. Perhaps this song, originally attributed to Miriam, was then put on the lips of Moses. So there's one way by which the voice of women in antiquity, in an ancient song tradition, probably one of the oldest traditions of the Hebrew Bible, is lost. My mother in England is still alive. I know you've figured out that I am not from Brooklyn. I'm actually moving to Brooklyn, so I can't use that line very much longer. Uh, so I, my mother's still alive in the UK, and when I say to her, what's your favorite passage from the Bible? She says to me, Proverbs 31. Do you want to turn to Proverbs 31? Someday I'll ask her why, hopefully before she dies. 
And what she's thinking of is Proverbs 31, verse 10. A capable wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from far away. She rises while it's still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls. Isn't it great she's got servant girls when she's doing all this stuff? She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out. At night, she puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates. Taking his seat among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies merchants with sashes. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks way, well to the ways of her household, does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy. Her husband, too, and he praises her. He says, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the city gates." beautiful. It's an acrostic. Every line of that little section of Proverbs 31 takes every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, A, and makes a verse out of it. And then you follow the Hebrew alphabet all the way through. Yes, it's an amazing description of a woman. What woman can live up to this, I said, mom. <laughs> what woman can live up to this? The interesting thing about this section, and why I'm quoting it here, is that we never hear her voice. She probably has no time to speak. If she, had, if she had an iPhone, she'd probably dictate to it on the fly or something like that. So isn't it, isn't it beautiful, but where's her voice? Where's her voice? Now, my field is the New Testament, so let's just go one more example to the silencing of women in, in the Bible and look at Luke Look at Luke's gospel. So here I'm looking at Luke 1 and 2. And I'm, I'm looking at chapter 2, verse 21, in which Jesus' parents decide it's time to have him circumcised. He's a good Jewish boy. He's going to be circumcised. He's called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time comes for his purification according to the law of Moses, they bring him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord because that's what the law prescribes. And they offer a sacrifice in verse 24. And there in Jerusalem, as it were, greeting them, perhaps in the temple, is Simeon, righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, the Holy Spirit rested on him, he had received a message, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So yes, he is there to receive Jesus. And guided by the Spirit, he comes into the temple and when Jesus' parents bring in their child to adhere to the 
commands of the law, Simeon takes Jesus, the baby, in his arms and praises God, saying, Lord, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon sings a song, a beautiful song that celebrates the significance of this baby Jesus, after which he will die. And the child's father and mother, verse 33, are amazed at what's being said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to his mother Mary some things that cause Mary to ponder in her heart the meaning of these words. And in verse 36, we discover that alongside Simeon is a prophet, Anna. Simeon and Anna. Luke likes pairs. Simeon and Anna. Mary and Martha. Sam, Anna is the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She's old too, like Simeon. She's lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. But where's her song? I know that I will never live long enough to find the song of Anna. If there was a song of Simeon, there's a song of Anna. But Luke, the gospel that loves women, that gives more stories about women, that gives more voice to women than any of the other gospels, Luke is silent on the matter of Anna's song. So sometimes when I wake at 2 a.m., I try to compose the song of Anna, but now I've discovered that this church could compose the song of Anna because you have great musicians here, much better than I could, so I commission you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So there's three examples out of biblical tradition where the voice of women is marginalized, either in Hebrew scriptures or the New Testament, or simply eclipsed. Now, what about the whole of Western tradition? You will be amazed to find that this morning, I'm not only talking about the whole of the Bible, I am bold and even brashly talking about the whole of Western tradition. I'm borrowing here classical scholars like Mary Beard who say that the first recorded example of a man telling a woman to shut up, telling her that her voice was not to be heard in public, is in that old epic, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. We tend now to think of the Odyssey as the story of Odysseus and all the adventures and snares that he avoided and the contest with Cyclops and all kinds of things, returning home from the Trojan War. It's a, not a direct flight uh, to Ithaca uh, from the Trojan War. While his wife Penelope was back in Ithaca, waiting loyally for him, fending off the suitors who were stuck in the house downstairs while she was upstairs doing the stuff that she was doing upstairs, they were eating and drinking and sort of making themselves nuisances while Odysseus wasn't there. But the Odyssey is just as much the story of their son, Telemachus, and the story of his growing up, how over the course of the poem he matures from boy to man. And this process starts in the great hall when Penelope comes down from her private quarters to find 
another song fest going on amongst the suitors downstairs. You know, the beer cans are open, there's a, some renegade harpist dropping in notes, and he's singing about the difficulties the Greek heroes are having reaching home. She is not amused. And in front of everyone, she asks that he choose a happier song. At which point, young Telemachus, her son, that teenager, intervenes, mother, he says, Go back up into your quarters and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff. Speech will be the business of men, all men, and of me most of all, for mine is the power in this household. And off she goes, back upstairs. It's kind of annoying. I'm sure those of you who have teenage sons will feel this, that he, Telemachus, should have enough chutzpah to try and shut up his mother. But it demonstrates right at the beginning of Western culture, the Odyssey, still a loud voice in our culture today, that women's voices are being silenced by others in the public sphere. And what Homer is demonstrating is that a part of growing up for a young boy is to learn to take control of public utterance, public discourse, and to silence the female of the species. The actual words Telemachus uses are significant too. When he says speech is men's business, the word is mythos, not in the sense of myth, but authoritative speech, which is what it connotes in Homeric Greek, not gossip or prattling, but authoritative speech. Now, women's voices are no, no, yes, to some degree, women's voices are more widely heard today, but in our own contemporary culture, there are some places where women's voices are not heard. I'm just going to give you one example. It's a cartoon. It's from my own culture, the UK. And there's a satirical magazine in the UK that I grew up with called Punch. It's sort of dead now, but never mind. Punch was the Punch and Judy show, which you may sort of remember. Okay, so in this cartoon, there's a bunch of men sitting around a boardroom. So now we're in a business setting. They're all in suits. And one woman. And the caption underneath is, that's an excellent suggestion, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. So I want, I want to take that as a paradigm. Who of us working in settings, myself included, has not had an experience somewhat like that? So what Telemachus' statement from antiquity to Miss Triggs, whoever thought that you'd be hearing Telemachus and Miss Triggs in one sentence, what, 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 the, what the span of this, 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 this repression seems to indicate is, is not just the suppression of women's voices, but the demonstration of the suppression. In the early 4th century, Aristophanes devoted a whole comedy to the fantasy that women might take over the running of the state. Part of the joke was that women couldn't speak properly in public, or rather, they couldn't adapt their private speech to the lofty idiom of male politics. I just want to muse a tiny little bit. I don't know if you've seen Meryl Streep acting the role of Mrs. Thatcher in that amazing movie, 
wasn't it Meryl Streep, or was it, um, wasn't Meryl Streep? Helen Mirren. It was a great, it was, a, it, no, it can't be Helen Mirren. It was Meryl Streep, because, because what, Helen, what Meryl Streep has done in that movie, and I, I commend it to you. I know you have no time, but I commend it to you anyway. Maybe you could put it on while the kids are sleeping or something. So in this movie, what Meryl Streep does is adopt the voice of Mrs. Thatcher. Can you imagine a greater contrast? Meryl Streep, Mrs. Thatcher. But what Meryl Streep indicates, amongst other things, is that Mrs. Thatcher had to learn how to speak, to be prime minister for all the terms that she had. She had to change her voice. That's precisely because of the issue I'm trying to discuss. What is it that makes the hearing of women's voices acceptable in public discourse, especially in politics? Now, scholars of antiquity note that there are only two main exceptions in the classical world to, to the silencing of women's public speech. The first is the New Testament. So now I'm going to say some really positive things about women's voices in the New Testament. Think of the resurrection proclamation of Mary in John 20. John 20. Mary is weeping. She goes very early in the morning. She discovers that there's an empty tomb, and she looks around through her tears for someone, and there's a gardener, and she says, where have you taken him? Do you remember this amazing story? I know you don't even need to look it up. And when the gardener turns out to be the resurrected Jesus who speaks the name that he called her by when he was alive, and she in turn speaks a name presumably by which she also called him, in their reciprocity they recognize each other, he says to her, go and say to my brethren. He commissions her to speak. And this is what she says. I have seen the Lord. Could there be any more important proclamation of the resurrection than those words? I have seen the Lord. So there's the voice of a woman emerging into prominence. Peter Abelard in the 12th century said that Miriam's song of the sea was just like Mary's, I have seen the Lord. Peter Abelard, who although a monk loved Eloise, as you know, Peter Abelard celebrated the voice of Miriam in Exodus 15 and the voice of Mary in John 20. These are two Marys singing the praises of God. So my second example from the New Testament in which we see the voice of women is Mary, Jesus' mother, in Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel appears to her. I can hear you want to look at it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> wonderful. Somewhere I'm a closet Baptist. It's just one of those things. I used to teach in the South, and in the South I discovered that um, there were lots of Baptists, and I discovered that it was really important to be on my toes and that if I played biblical trivial pursuit, I was in danger of losing, but I never did. So in Luke 1, when we get the annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1, 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, you were talking about Christmas trees earlier in the service. This is the lesson we often read at Christmas. In the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel goes to Mary 
And when he greets her in verse 28, verse 29 gives her reaction. She was much perplexed by his words and wondered and thought and cogitated what sort of greeting this might be. So the angel said, don't be afraid. I'm going to explain the whole thing to you. And the result of the engagement, the dialogue between, the, between Mary and Gabriel is the acquiescence of Mary in verse 38. And then in verse 46, according to tradition, the singing of the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. This is Mary's song of rejoicing in the fact that she is pregnant and that God has looked with favor on her. There's no bigger voice than the voice of Mary in the Magnificat. And we say it in the daily office every day, every day, every one of us who says, who says morning prayer is the voice of Mary in the daily office. So the, the cogitation of Mary in verse 29, the fact that women have minds in antiquity is something devoutly to be treasured. Most writers in antiquity don't think that women have minds at all. The fact that Mary's cogitating leads to acquiescence, yes, I will do this, leads to the Magnificat in song is a beautiful example of the way in which the New Testament, in contrast to classical tradition, gives women a voice, and she becomes the paradigm of what a disciple is like. And indeed, she's there at the ascension. And the third place where, where women's voices are heard in Christian tradition now outside the New Testament is in the martyr tradition at the point of death, perpetuous martyrdom in 203 of the common era is in the first person singular. So outside the Christian tradition, in 203, we have an a particular voice of a woman who is martyred for her faith in Jesus in Christian tradition, about which her first-person singular diary preserves her voice. So isn't it astonishing how Christian tradition preserves these voices? It preserves and suppresses at the same time. All right. So let's... let's talk just by way of conclusion, that the silencing of women is not just a reflection of women's disempowerment. No voting rights, women didn't have the right to vote till much later, limited legal and economic independence and so on. What we're dealing with is a much more active and loaded exclusion of women from public speech. It's one with much greater impact than we usually acknowledge. What I mean is that public speaking and and, and oratory, speeches, sermons, were not merely things that ancient women didn't do. They were practices that defined masculinity. Becoming a man is to claim the right to speak. Public speech is what it means to be a guy. A woman speaking in public is not a woman. So we find stress in antiquity and even today on the authority of the deep male voice. Think of the connotations of that word deep. Deep as in profound, deep as in low. A low-pitched voice, as ancient texts put it, indicates manly courage. A high-pitched voice, female cowardice. 
What I want to underline here is that antiquity is not so removed from our time. The tradition of gendered speaking, of which we are still the heirs of the biblical and classical tradition, these conventions and rules about public speaking still lie very much in our background and shadows. Our own rhetorical training goes back directly to speech patterns of classical authors like Aristotle and Cicero, and it's common to point out that Barack Obama or his speechwriters have learned their best tricks from Cicero. So in modern traditions of oratory, when women speak publicly, they support themselves or women's interests, or they parade their victimhood, as in the martyr traditions. In fact, if you look at 100 great speeches of history, if there is such a thing on Wikipedia, you'll find that most of the female highlights, from Emmeline Pankhurst to Hillary Clinton, are about the lot of women. So is probably the most popularly anthologized example of female speech in 1851, Ain't I a Woman, the speech of Sojourner Truth, ex-slave, abolitionist, American campaigner for women's rights, and Ain't I a Woman, she is supposed to have said. I have borne 13 children, seen them most all sold off to slavery, and when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me, and Ain't I a Woman? Now, the authorized version of this speech was written up a decade or so after Sojourner Tooth said whatever she said, and that is when the now famous refrain, which she certainly did not say, was inserted, while at the same time her words as a whole were translated into a southern drawl. On, the truth is that she came from the north and she'd been brought up speaking Dutch. I'm not saying that women's voices raised in support of women's causes aren't important, but it remains the case that women's public speech is about what it means to be a woman. Sometimes when, in our, in our culture, we describe the sound of women's speech, we say women speaking is an example of stridency. Do this kind of, does this kind of description matter? Yes, of course it does, because it underpins a way to remove the authority, the force, even the humor from what women have to say. Contrast the deep-voiced man with all the connotations of profundity. It's still the case that when listeners hear a female voice, they don't hear a voice that connotes authority, or rather, they have not learned how to hear authority in women's speech. They don't tend to hear expertise outside of women's particular niche interests. And these attitudes are hardwired into us, not our brains, but into our culture, our language, and millennia of our history. So what I'm concluding is that we have to focus on how we have learned to hear the contributions of women, or going back to Miss Triggs, the contribution of Miss Triggs. Not just how can she break into that conversation, but how can we make ourselves more aware about the processes and prejudices that make us not listen to her, screen her out, get a man to say it instead. So, in conclusion, I invite you to consider with me what we mean by the voice of authority and how we have come to construct it. And when we deliberate on this question, 
we will simultaneously be engaging with what it means for both women and men to be created in God's image. Let us pray. O oh God, you have taught us that in your voice worlds were made, creation out of chaos was effected. Help us hear in silence your word to us and give us words that you would have us use to the furtherance of your kingdom, to the peace of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.